Good morning. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, again, we are so thankful to be able to draw together and study about your word, about your kingdom, and about your plan for us. We ask that your spirit will join us and enlighten us and enable us to fulfill your purposes. We pray in your holy name. Amen. I want to remind everybody about the Power of Love training and equipping course in Dallas, January 17 through 19. If you haven't signed up, you might want to. We already have over 220 people registered for the event, and there is limited uh, attendance. They will close at some point uh, if it fills up uh, completely. And I don't remember the exact number there. And we are going to be promoting this at the American Association of Christian Counselors, uh, which is October 9th through 12th. That's an event of about 7,000 people in attendance. And so, um, you know, if you want to get in be sure, before that group gets promoted on this, um, be sure you get your registration in. And then um, just reminding everybody, if you have somebody who doesn't speak English that you'd like to share this with, check our website, Multilanguage. We have a variety of different resources up in various languages now. We're adding to that. So um, check that out and see if there's a language there for, for you to share with your friend if they need it. Okay, um, today we're doing lesson number two in our quarterly, Ezra and Nehemiah. And the uh, title of the lesson is Nehemiah. And the memory verse describes how Nehemiah fasted and prayed... Asking God to intervene. Do we today fast and pray, asking God to intervene in our current human history? See, he was asking God to intervene, not just in his life personally, not say, I need healing, I've got uh, trouble with my bills. He was asking God to intervene in the course of human events, what was happening with nations. Wasn't he? Yeah, have the ruler, uh, have the, the set of, get, get the, 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 the Jerusalem rebuilt. He was asking for, for, do we really, do we, do we pray for God to intervene in human events today? Do we pray for God to bring about the final events of the second coming? Do we? Do we ever pray, Lord, Jesus, come quickly. And then turn around and pray later, but hold back the difficult times. Stop the hurricanes and the earthquakes and, and, the, and the famines and the, and the wickedness in the world. Hold that back. Can we have the second coming of Christ that, while at the same time holding back the troublesome times? It's like a woman who's pregnant saying, Lord, bring this baby, but don't let me go into labor. <laughs> and Jesus used the metaphor of labor, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, so I, 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 I bring this up because sometimes I find myself, you know, kind of doing that, seeing a, an event happening, and so I've started to pray, Lord, I don't know if this event plays well in your end time plan. If it does, let it go through. If it doesn't, turn it and stop it. Well, see, I have the opposite feeling. When things happen, it's like, well, it has to happen to bring the end of time. I mean, if we want Christ to come soon, these things have to happen. It's not, we can't change it. What would you do if tonight... An angel knocked on your door and said, grab a backpack and come with me. You must flee your home and go to the mountains right now. I'd want to make sure it's an angel and then I'd go. See? Of course you do. That's a good point. Absolutely. You understand this was Lot's position. I mean, we know there's going to be false angels and false prophets and false everything, so yep. I know you're real. So maybe that's why Lot had him spend a meal with him first. So you invite him in for a meal, and over the meal you have a conversation... But they tell you at the end of this meal, tomorrow morning, you get a good night's rest because tomorrow we got to flee. Are you ready to flee? I think about that kind of stuff. Do you think about that kind of stuff? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what Lot faced. You know, we speak about believing the second coming of Christ, but are we prepared to act, to move, to leave, to suffer, to speak, to stand up, to face trials for God's cause? Are we prepared? Well, what is the purpose of fasting and praying? Is fasting and praying to get God to do something he would not otherwise do? No. 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 Or is fasting and praying a means of connecting us with God so that we can become more attuned to God's purposes? Yes. Could it be God is waiting to act in human history because he needs some of his people willing to act in his behalf and carry out his purposes. Did he need Nehemiah? Define me. Yeah, or someone like Nehemiah to go and lead the people with him. Did he need Moses to confront Pharaoh? Did he, in other words, does God 
wait for his human agents to empower, to enlighten, to enable, to carry out his purposes? Or is God going to simply use his power to force it to be this way? Or the way did he wants. He need, no, did he choose? Yes. So you don't think he needs us to carry out his purposes? Well, let's maybe describe the purposes, because maybe there are some purposes he doesn't need us for. He didn't need us to for Jesus to live a sinless life. But he did need Mary to be willing to be the mother. He needed a righteous he wasn't going to have Jesus born to Jezebel. So he needed Mary's willingness, it seems to me. Anybody disagree with that? But he didn't need us for Jesus to be sinless. That was Jesus all on his own. But are there, are there, does he need us for our personal salvation? Can he save us without our participation? No. No. No, he needs to win us, to trust. He needs us because we are a showcase to the other world. He needs us to be cooperative with him and to understand him and his way so that it's not a coercion factor. But if he wants to move mountains, he can move mountains. We're not talking about mountains. We're talking about hearts and people. Well, they can change too. uh, When he said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. What was he talking about? So, if we're willing. So this is the point I'm getting. Is fasting and praying primarily a means to influence God or primarily a means to tune us in with God so that we can be more useful for him? First two paragraphs uh, say, To date, two groups of captives have returned to Judah in the last par- in the last partial fulfillment of God's promise to the Hebrew nation. But there is one more company of exiles of God that God is preparing. The last group of captives is commissioned to fix the problem. Although the first two groups return to rebuild Jerusalem and to complete part of that project by finishing the temple, the rest of the construction was abandoned as opposition from the surrounding nations arose. The people from the surrounding area didn't want the Israelites to build the city and its walls because they were afraid that the Israelites might become a mighty nation as they had once been. Thus, the return of the Israelites appeared to be a threat, one that they were determined to stop. But God didn't call his people in order to abandon them in the process of doing what he called them to do. A couple of questions. Um, first, I, I believe the Bible history to be historically true. Okay? I really do. I believe the Bible has real people who did real stuff in human history. But I also, have you ever seen those mosaics that uh, have a thousand different pictures that when they put them together, you see a bigger picture? Okay? Every one of those individual pictures are real people, real pictures. But then when you put them together, I think there are millions of Jewish lives and people that lived in Old Testament times. God selected a very small number of lives to be highlighted in Scripture. I think God did that for not just historical purpose, just to give us a good history book, but to teach us a larger reality, to teach us the, the plan of salvation. And as it says in Scripture, these, uh, in the New Testament, these things are written down for our benefit. Okay, So there, there are object lessons in addition to literal history going on here. And so in addition to what I just read, is there an object lesson that applies? I'm going to give some quotes from one of the founders of our church in a moment where she talks about Nehemiah having an application and what he did in building up the walls, having an application to our time. But, but I want to unpack that with you. Do, you, do you. do you see this possibility? For instance, Israel was taken captive by Babylon. Why were they taken captive by? What was the reason? Because they, they didn't stay faithful to the Lord. Is that, is that fair to say? They did not stay faithful, and they went after other gods repeatedly, and because of their unfaithfulness, they were taken captive um, to Babylon. Is there an object lesson in that? If we're unfaithful to the Lord today, will our hearts and minds become captive to evil and selfishness? Yes. Okay. Does Babylon in, Bible, in the Bible represent something more than a historic city? So can we be taken captive by the symbolic Babylon, the system of confusion of the world, if we don't stay faithful to the Lord? Our minds and hearts. There's an object lesson there, a system of confusion. And are we not called to call people out of Babylon at this time in history? A system of confusion. As ancient Israel went into captive to ancient Babylon because of unfaithfulness, Christianity, in my view 
has become captive by rejecting truths about God's law because of accepting Satan's version of God's law, which is God's law functions like human law, a system of rules that he made up that he enforces with threats of punishment. Rather than worshiping the creator who builds space, time, energy, matter, life, and whose laws are the laws upon which reality operate. People are taken captive into superstition and myth. And we are called out, just like Israel's called out. And interestingly, after Israel went into captivity, Christianity went into captivity of this mythical kind of belief system coming out of imperial Rome that became pagan Rome, became papal Rome, and all of this kind of stuff that makes no sense. You know, and I've got a list of them in the notes somewhere. But you can think of some of these things that came out of once you accept this idea that God's law works like human law, all kinds of crazy things happen. Like, well, you know, sin has to be paid for, and we can pay for it with indulgences. You bring enough gold to the, to the church, that, then you can pay for your sin. Uh, if you don't pay for it here, though, somebody's got to be punished, and so you go to a place of punishment called purgatory, where you get punished uh, until the proper punishment is meted out, because, you know, sin has to have an inflicted punishment put upon it. This is a human law model, and it's corrupt, and all kinds of crazy contradictory things happen. And people's mind became superstitious, and mythical in many of the ways they believed. But we are called out just as Israel's called out. And in Israel, we're brought out, as it said in the lesson, in three groups. Three times groups left and came back to rebuild Jerusalem before the walls were actually rebuilt. And we are called to be repairs of the breach of God's law. And can you see possibly three calling outs that have come? I would suggest that this is also metaphorical, object lesson for the history we're in, uh, that this generation today represents the third group to be called out of Babylon to give the final message from Revelation 18 where the message must be given again. The first calling out was the loud cry and uh, began with uh, William Miller calling people out. And the second, I would say, and that led to the great disappointment, the second, I would say, was 1888, the righteousness by faith calling out. Calling out of this legal, your uh, righteousness is declared to an actual righteousness by faith. You become, so 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he who knew no sin became sin for us. There's substitution. Some allege I don't believe in the substitutionary death of Christ. That's not true. There it is. I believe in the substitutionary death of Christ but for the reason Scripture says, and it says it right there. He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that, here's the reason, we might become the righteousness of God. Not that we might be declared righteous, even though you're not. That's the penal legal lie based on human law. God wants you to become righteous through his grace and trust in him, not in your own works, but the gift you receive when you receive Christ. You get a new heart and right spirit. The law gets written in the heart and mind. Your heart gets circumcised by the spirit. The heart of stone is removed. You get a heart of flesh put in the metaphors of Scripture about actually transforming you so that in Revelation 12 it says, notice notice the, the righteous, here they are. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. You see, the natural human heart is survival of the fittest driven. Got to watch out and protect me. Kill or be killed. But the new heart... I don't love my life so much that I will shrink from death. Thus, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not love their life so much that they would shrink from death. They stood for right, even if their life was threatened. Daniel in the lion's den. Job. You see these people who are uh, in, in Job, perfect and righteous in all his ways. You want Bible perfection is about that mature character that does not love its life so much that you will compromise God's principles to save yourself. Stephen, many many of the righteous, this is what it's talking about. Okay, So I say the third calling out then, and so the breaching God's law, that God's law functions like human law, an imperial distortion. God runs his universe like Caesar runs Rome. And if you think of the corruption that has come from all of that, and we are, we are calling people back to worship our creator God who built the heavens and the earth and the fountains of water. This creator worship which repairs the breach in God's law. And it's that breach that opened up for all these distortions of pagan ideas to enter into Christianity. 
So there's a lesson we can learn from Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a man of faith. He prayed. Prayed and he moved forward in faith, trusting God. Well, consider this quote from Great Controversy. Great Controversy 552. The prophet points out the ordinance which had been forsaken. Thou shalt raise up, this is talking about Isaiah. She's quoting Isaiah here. Um, Isaiah 58, 12 to 14 is the quote. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the paths to dwell in. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call a Sabbath a delight, the Lord, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor him, doing, uh, not doing thine own way, or finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord. End of the Bible quote. Continuing with the great controversy quote. This prophecy also applies to our time. The object lesson, it was real, historic, okay? But it has an application, an object lesson. This prophecy applies to our time. The breach was made in the law of God when the Sabbath was changed by the Roman power. But the time has come for the divine institution to be restored. The breach is to be repaired and the foundation of many generations be raised up. Do you hear this through imposed law, system of rules? Well, God has a rule. Or do you hear this through design law, God is creator? What do you hear? See, how is it possible for the church of the day to change the day of worship from Sabbath to Sunday? How is that possible? They accepted a premise. They accepted a premise first. This, this is where we're going. So why isn't there one church in the world today, not one, given the state of the what's happening in our environment, why isn't there one church that, that, that votes that if you join our church, you will be immune from environmental toxins anywhere on the planet? Why, why doesn't it, wouldn't that be a great benefit for joining a church? Uh, air pollution won't affect you. Uh, toxins in food won't affect you. Why don't they vote for that? I'm, I'm illustrating a point here. Because they can't change design laws. See... Humans can vote to make marijuana legal. They cannot vote to make it healthy. God's laws are design laws. So what does it mean now? When you, understand, when you see that difference, what does it mean that a church did vote to change the Sabbath? And they did. It means they don't see it as design law. They first understand it as simply legislated rules like we make up. And so the Sabbath is a sign or an evidence of this change in the law. It wasn't just merely about which day one goes to church. It was an entire corruption of how Christians understand God's law and government. His entire government was corrupted in the minds of Christianity to be imperial and dictatorial. And the Sabbath change is the evidence of that corruption. And so you notice what was said in the quote. The breach was made in the law of God. This is how it was worded now by the author. When the Sabbath was changed. She didn't say the breach was made in the law. The breach made in the law is the change of the Sabbath. When it was changed. Well, I have another quote just coming up in a moment. So the Sabbath changes the evidence of a breach, but it in of itself is not the breach. The true breach was the change in the fundamental understanding of God's law. In other words, the God we worship is God the creator whose laws are the laws upon which reality built. We've talked about the law of love, law of liberty, law of of truth, law of worship, law of exertion, law of restoration. All the laws upon which uh, reality works, including your mind and including the moral laws. I've had some theologians say, okay, we agree with you that God is the creator of nature and his natural laws in nature, physics, gravity, laws of health, they are design laws. But the moral laws of the Ten Commandments, they're not like that. They're rules that he gave us. I've had some theologians say that. And so I say back, okay, tell me what makes it wrong to commit adultery. Is it the same thing that makes it wrong to go 36 miles an hour in a 35-mile-an-hour zone? See, that that 35-mile-an-hour just a rule made up. It's arbitrary. There's no real consequence to it. You have to be caught. So the problem with committing adultery is, well, God is a recording angel, and if you do it, he makes a demerit in a book in heaven. 
That's what the problem is. And then God one day will have a tribunal. And if you didn't actually ask Jesus to pay the penalty for you and get that erased out of the book, then God one day will torture you the appropriate amount of time before he kills you. Or does the adulterer actually do something in himself? Does the adulterer sear their conscience, warp their character, harden their heart? They become more fearful, more apprehensive, more suspicious. Do they start telling lies to cover for themselves? Does their character change? Can, can an adulterer avoid the corruption of their character? That's design law. You can't avoid it. That's why uh, Ellen White wrote, um, um, every sin reacts upon the sinner and makes it more easy for them to sin again. It corrupts the character. This is design law. You cannot avoid it. So I tell people, you can't have physical health while living in violation of the laws of health. Doesn't matter what the doctor does. You, you're smoking a couple packs a day and you've got lung disease and you go see the doctor. Doesn't matter what medicine he gives you. If you keep smoking, you're not getting better. Likewise, we can't have restoration to righteousness, become the righteousness of God, if we live in violation of God's design law. I've actually had patients come see me asking for help with their marriage and they, they're having conflict and trouble in their marriage while they're having an affair. Seriously. They cannot have a healthy marriage while they're cheating on their spouse, can they? It's not possible. I've had others come while they're beating their spouse. Not cheating, hadn't slept with anybody else. But they beat them and they wonder why they're, 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 there's no love in the marriage. That's the violation of the law of liberty. You can't have it. So this idea that God's laws function like human laws makes God's character switch from the benevolent, gracious, for God's will of the world he gave, and he's the constant source of all goodness, all grace, all life. He's not God. I'm going to tell you something right, right, right now. God is not the source of death. Death is going to... Christ died that he might destroy him as the power of death. And by his death, he destroys death and brings life and immortality to light. And death is going to be eliminated, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians. It's the last enemy to be destroyed. Death doesn't come from God. God is a source of life. Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. Death comes out from breaking God's law. And if you understand the design law realities, then you think about when Paul says, well, the power of sin is the law. How is the power of sin the law? Does that make sense to you? The power of sin is, is the law. God's law is the power of sin. God's laws are constants like gravity, like the law of respiration. They're just constants. They do not change. They do not waver. They do not show partiality. They do not discriminate. They are just constants. Your breaking of them, they will not adapt to. If you jump off the Empire State Building and then pray to God for good health and a long life, God's law does not change to meet you in your sin. If you've heard that saying, that saying God will not change his law to meet the sinner in their sin. It doesn't change. It's a constant. So if you tie 100-pound weights to your feet and jump in the ocean, what is the power that kills you? The law of respiration that you're breaking. That's the power of sin. Is the law of God that will not change. And when you choose to sin, sin is transgression of the law. Taking yourself out of harmony with the law. And there's power to destroy. So, so that's the power of sin. And this is the law of sin and death. When you break it, there's, there's, no, there's no living out there. There's only trusting Jesus for him to restore in you his law and bring you back into harmony with it. So, the SDA church has come into existence and reclaimed the right day of worship. But it has not yet fully repaired the breach because it hasn't rejected imperialism and imposed law constructs with its penal legal lie and began promoting God as creator in its fullness and his law is the laws upon which reality work. So, so three comings out, I think this generation with this message of the three angels' message through design law is the third group to give Revelation 14, again, as it says in Revelation 18, another angel comes calling people out of Babylon one more time. And that Babylon is that Roman system of imperialism that has infected Christianity. Notice Isaiah's quote, we are to repair the breach when we call the Sabbath a delight. 
can delight in something be legislated? Now, delight can't be legislated. There is only one way for the Sabbath to be a delight, and it has to be a change in the heart of the people who observe it. And what makes the Sabbath a delight? The truth about its purpose that it reveals. The Sabbath reveals the character of God. Truth presented in love, leaving us free. It is a gift of God to us, revealing his love, his kindness, his mercy, his methods, his truth. And it is a delight to have freedom. If you've ever been in bondage, whether it's financial bondage of some kind, uh, you've just been trapped in something, it is a delight to be set free. The bondage of sin before you came to Christ, and, and you were set free from that. It's a delight to have freedom. And the Sabbath is a day that guarantees you will have freedom with God. How is it a guarantee, a promise made? And it's an evidence given. Well, remember when the Sabbath was made. This is a mind blower for the imperialists. Those who believe God runs his universe like we do, they see the Ten Commandments as a list of rules, and they say that's eternal, it's always been that way, and therefore the Sabbath has always been in existence. But it says right here, the Sabbath was made for man. It was created. It had a beginning. And it was the beginning was the creation of earth at the end of six days. And what, and what was happening in the universe when this planet was made? Was there something going on, some question, some controversy already started? Lucifer began his rebellion, the polemo. There was war in heaven. It says, remember, the, polemo, the argument that God isn't trustworthy. You can't trust him. And day one through six... God reveals power. Creation, wow, I can't imagine the power that was dispensed in the creation of our solar system. It's beyond my imagination, beyond yours. We take a few grams of matter, we turn that matter into energy, that's a nuclear explosion. That's how much energy in a few grams. How much energy to make the whole planet, the sun, the moon, the, the rest of the stars of the solar system? How, how much energy? I can't imagine it. It was a quiet display of might and power. And so we learn God is powerful, day one through six. What do we learn on day seven? In the context of Satan saying, you don't have a right to rule, we can't trust you, God creates a day of liberty. Truth was presented, and then he says, I rest my case, I step back. And he gives us a gift as human beings, a gift to come aside every day, a gift of time, a vacation in time, a day of promise, a day of evidence. And it was a gift to us. But it was for the whole universe to learn. So if you get engaged and you give a woman an engagement ring, the ring is her gift. But everyone who sees it, it's an evidence to everybody who sees that gift of something, of her engagement. The Sabbath was for us. It's our gift. But all the intelligent beings learn something from seeing it. And they learn the character of the one who wields the power, that he stopped using his power and gave his intelligent beings freedom to think. That's what we learn. And so the Sabbath was constructed, built, made. And thus it stands as a sign, an evidence of God's methods, design law. How did the Sunday come into being as a day of worship? It wasn't constructed, made, created as a day. It was legislated as a day. A rule just made up. And thus it is a mark of the beastly system. And that's how human governments work. Coercion. No one can buy or sell save him who has the mark. And these days stand as two systems, and that's what makes them, and it's not simply about the days, it's about what they represent. Think about flags of nations. We have a flag here. It's a sign of this nation, but it's not the nation. The Sabbath is a sign, but it's not the government of God. And you can wave this flag, as Nazi soldiers did who impersonated U.S. soldiers during World War II. They waved our flag and infiltrated our troops. You can wave the U.S. flag and be against us. You can worship on the Sabbath and crucify the Savior. You have to get back to what it represents, worshiping the Creator, whose laws are the laws upon which reality operate. So how do we repair the breach? By rejecting imperial law, imposed rules, worshiping the creator, embracing design law. So listen from Prophets and Kings, page 677. The spiritual restoration of which the work carried forward in Nehemiah's day, this is the object lesson stuff again, uh, was a symbol. It is outlined in the words of Isaiah. 
They shall build the old waste places. They shall raise up the former desolations and they shall repair the waste cities. They shall be of the, uh, that, that, they that shall be of thee shall build up the old waste places. They shall raise up the foundations of many generations and they, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the paths to dwell in. Continue on with the quote. The prophet here describes a people who, in a time of general departure from the truth and righteousness, are seeking to restore the principles that are the foundation of the kingdom of God. The principles. That's what we're seeking to restore. The design laws. That's what principles are. Keep on with the quote. They are repairers of a breach that has been made in God's law. The wall that has that he placed around his chosen ones for their protection. An obedience to whose precepts of justice, truth, and purity is to be their perpetual safeguard. In words of unmistakable meaning, the prophet points out the specific work of the remnant people to build the wall. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, and it quotes that same again, call my Sabbath a delight, doing thy own pleasure, and so forth. That same quote in this is, is used here. It had, it, it, in the time of the end, every divine institution is to be restored. The breach made in the law, now notice how this is stated, I'm going to be very careful. Notice how it's worded. The breach made in the law at the time the Sabbath was changed by man is to be repaired. Did you, did you hear that phrase? The breach made in the law at the time the Sabbath was changed. The Sabbath is the evidence of the breach. The Sabbath change. But the real breach was the change that allowed men to think they could actually change God's law. You can't change God's law, folks. You can't do it. But people think they can. Some people do. God's remnant people, oh, and, uh, and the Sabbath was changed by man, is to be repaired. God's remnant people standing before the world as reformers are to show that the law of God is the foundation of all enduring reform. I want to pause. Why? Why is the law of God the foundation of all enduring reform? Because it's the law of life. The principles upon which life is established operate. One cannot have health in violations of the law's health. All enduring reform is moving in harmony with how God built life to operate. It's very simple. And that the Sabbath of the fourth commandment is to stand as a memorial of creation, a sign, an evidence, a memorial, a constant reminder of the power of God. In clear, distinct lines, they are to present the necessity of obedience to all the precepts of the Decalogue, constrained by the love of Christ. They are to cooperate with him in building up the waste places. They are to be repairers of the breach, the restorers of the path to dwell in. What was the breach made when or at the time that the Sabbath was changed? I put out and put forth the real breach was seeing God's law and government running like Rome. God is a dictator in heaven. He's a righteous dictator, but he's a dictator who makes up rules without inherent consequence. And if you break them, he keeps a list in a book. And if you don't get a legal payment made, he'll use his power appropriately meted out after the committee of the thousand years determines how many minutes you deserve to suffer. And then he'll torture you those minutes before he kills you. Do you understand if that's the God you worship, you can't trust him. You need to be protected from him. Yes. Tim, are you saying that then before the breach, there was a correct understanding of design law? I think, yes, Christ taught that. And if you look at the New Testament, what Christ taught over and over and over again, he was teaching it and they hated him for it. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Okay, This is a parable to teach a lesson. What's, who's right with God? We have the injured man and we have a priest that comes by. Doesn't do anything. We have a Levite comes by. Doesn't do anything. We have a Samaritan comes by and he does what? Provides medicinal care, love and service and restores him and pays for his debts and I mean pays for his treatment and so forth and then he asked the question who's his neighbor to the guy who said you know what's the law of God love your neighbor as yourself well who's my neighbor so he gives us okay so and loving God it all is the fulfillment of the law I mean loving God and your neighbor is the fulfillment of the law so he's really talking about law and here's God's law and he gives this example and so he said who's the neighbor and the and the and the Jewish person rabbi who asked him the one who helped him he couldn't even say the Samaritan the one who helped him. Now, in the story, do you agree the Samaritan is right with God? 
How many Sabbaths did the Samaritan keep? How many sacrifices did he bring to temple? How much tithe did he pay? Uh, how many feast days did he keep? Did he eat a kosher diet? Did he do any of that stuff if he was a Samaritan? Probably not. But he was right with God? Do you see the Samaritan was breaking all of their rules? All of them were being broken by the Samaritan. Yet Jesus makes him out. Do you see why they hated Jesus and they killed him? Do you see why we get opposition and we promote it's about changing the heart to be right with God and living his principles out, even if you were baptized by sprinkling instead of immersion? Do I believe the immersion is the biblical? Well, of course I do. But I believe it's a symbol of immersing your character and heart in the Holy Spirit, which cleanses and heals you. And that's the real baptism you must have, the baptism of the Spirit. The water's just a symbol. It doesn't do anything. But people fight over it. Jesus was doing this, pointing this out with the Samaritans. There's many stories and parables like this that he teaches. As the rain and the sunshine fall on the righteous and the wicked. Right? Remember the story? And what's the rain and the sunshine? Design stuff. He's teaching. God is not a... Is par, God is not partial in his laws. His laws treat everyone the same. Sunday's law, Nehemiah received bad news that the walls of Jerusalem had not been repaired. Uh, what is the ap- application, the object lesson for us in the story of what he did after that? Walls are not repaired. Bad news. What's Nehemiah do? Does he go in his room, get depressed, and give up? No, he turns to the Lord and begins to pray, and he has to be used. Walls represent what? We've, I've get, we've already read a couple of quotes. The walls of Jerusalem are metaphorical for challenges, trials. No, the walls of Jerusalem that, that were not built, rebuilt, that they needed to build up, are metaphorical for God's law. They're a metaphor for the law that protects us. Um, a hedge of protection, the righteousness that, the, of God's law. But the law, the wall had been breached by believing lies about the law. That's what's happened. And then a lot of these ideas have come into the church that salvation is achieved through legal means, not healing the heart. Church has legal authority over souls. Sins must be punished. If, a sin, if sins are found and uh, not fully accounted for on earth, they must be punished in purgatory. Sins can be removed by the payment uh, to the church of indulgences. If someone dies and isn't given the last rites by the church, they don't get to go to heaven. All this legal mechanistic stuff. If someone isn't baptized by the church, they can't go to heaven. Relics have power. Uh, Jesus died to pay a legal debt and to keep God from killing us. God is required by justice to use his power to inflict punishment on sinners. Jesus is in heaven pleading his blood to the Father to pay our sin debt and get the Father to legally pardon us and remove God's anger and wrath from God's heart. I mean, this is the corruption in Christianity. I could go on and on. The breach of accepting the idea that God's law... This is why. You know, Graham Maxwell used to ask this question all the time. Why do some insist God must punish? He never had an answer before he died. We have an answer. I understand exactly why some insist God must punish. If we accept the premise that God's law functions like human law, it's not design law, there's no inherent consequence, it's just rules that the divine one made up, then he has to inflict punishment because if you don't enforce the law, there is no justice. But if it is design law, you don't have to inflict punishment on the person who jumps off a bridge or ties a plastic bag over their head and selfishly hoards their carbon dioxide. Or the adulterer who cheats on their wife and doesn't repent and get a new heart and right spirit. See, David was an adulterer, but he repented and got a new heart and right spirit. He was changed, not by his power, but by trusting his creator. But if David didn't repent, what happens to David? What direction? He gets more and more hard-hearted, more corrupt, more evil. Accepting the breach in the imperial law has corrupted Christianity, and the minds of people have a form of godliness, but no power, as Paul wrote to Timothy. Reformation is needed. The message of Revelation 18, calling people out of this Babylonian system of legal appeasement and all this confused stuff. And in repairing the breach in the law, leading people to reject imperialism and come back to embrace their creator, they experience healing and recreation. So consider what Isaiah has to say about this. This this about the walls. Notice, notice what he says. This is Isaiah 60, 18 through 21. No longer will violence be heard in your land, nor ruin or destruction within your borders. But you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. 
The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. The sun will never set again, and the moon will not wane, will, will wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. Then will all your people be righteous. And then, going down Isaiah 26, 1 through 3. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, a nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Is there a connection between repairing the breach in God's law, seeing God as the creator, his laws as designers, and becoming righteous? Is there a connection? We become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and the earth may new. The righteous are those who trust God. That's what it said in the text. Because he trusts in you. The righteous trust God and experience healing. They trust their creator. But the imposed legal lies lead to theologies that undermine trust in God. Let me give you examples. And you look at the function of many of the doctrines taught in Christianity. They have this function for people. This is what they're doing. That's why people hold to them. They're hiding them or protecting them from God. The blood payment made by Jesus to assuage the Father's wrath is taught in some sections of Christianity. The robe of righteousness to hide them from the Father. So when the Father looks at them, he can't see their sin. He only sees the righteousness of Christ, which covers them. They need to be hidden from from Christ, not from the Father. The blood erasing from the historical records their sins. So when the Father looks in the judgment into the record book, he doesn't see a record of sin because if he sees it, he'd have to punish them. Jesus stands as their advocate to plead in their behalf in the tribunal in heaven. My blood, Father, my blood, the payment's been made. Do you see the function of these doctrines and how they're taught? They're all teaching that we need to be hidden or protected from God. Why? Because they don't trust God. They trust Jesus. Jesus said, if you see me, you've seen the Father, we're one. This comes from imperialism. I, I see more Christians that are afraid of God who's trying to save them than the sin in their life which is destroying them. Russell. More to the point, these doctrines are protecting us from an angry God, from a God who needs to be appeased. That's my point. The character of God is the problem. And because we don't trust him, we that's don't right. know him, we don't trust him. That's right, because we have the imperial view, and we teach that justice requires it. A just God must punish. And if you have an eternal soul, he punishes you eternally in hell. If you have that view, I travel and speak to lots of different Christian groups, and that view is often held. But, but, but I will tell you, there are really good, loving Christian people out there that have that doctrine because they've not been taught everything else, but it troubles them because they've seen Jesus, and they see the love of Jesus, and they, know, and they love their own family, and they love their friends, and they wouldn't torture their own, loving, their own family and friends for all eternity. And so it troubles them, this doctrine of eternal burning hell. There's reason for the control factor and the concept of being raised by sinners in the hands of an angry God. Yeah, this is how the world functions. It makes you frightened, and if it can fe- make you fearful, then it can control you. There's freedom in God, freedom in Christ. He sets us free from fear and free from the corruption in our characters. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were perfect love casts out all fear. As we experience the love of God, which we can't produce, Romans 5, 5, he pours his love into our hearts. But he only pours love into the hearts that open him. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens, I'll come in. He doesn't force like a, a battering ram into someone's heart. They have to invite him in. And when we experience that love, the fear is taken away. And we can begin lives of service rather than lives of self-protection. Some of these metaphors are beautiful in Scripture, like the robe of righteousness. I just gave you how it is taught through the legal view, and it's taught through the legal view in a way that, that it hides us. But there's a beautiful, it's a beautiful metaphor, and it's a biblical metaphor. If you read Christ's Object Lessons, page 311, Ellen White describes its true meaning. She talks about the robe woven in the loom of heaven that has not one thread of human devising. And she says, when we trust God, our heart, hearts are brought in unity with his hearts. Our thoughts are united with his thoughts. Our desires become his desires, or, or his desires become our desires. And we live his life life 
This is what it means to be covered in the robe of righteousness. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. It's an actual healing transformation of the person, not covering over a continual perpetual corrupt heart, which is what some of the theologians I've spoken to hold that legal view say, that, that you are declared legally righteous in heaven even though you're not. You're not recreated to be righteous. You stay unrighteous. It's a fraud. And it keeps people in a state of fear and a distrusting of God. A form of godliness and no power. In other words, we have a message to present to call people out of this captivity of their minds that are captive in this Babylonian system. Monday's lesson, the lesson examined Nehemiah's prayer and identifies the structure. Let's look at the first section here in the lesson. It says, um, looking at the structure, it says, uh, God, uh, Nehemiah's prayer had four, uh, several sections. One, God, you are great and have mercy. Two, hear me. Three, confession of sins. Four, Remember your promises. And then back to three, you have redeemed us. Two, hear me, and God uh, grant us the prosperity and mercy. It has a structure they've outlined in this prayer. And that's true. It's there. There's a, very, there's a, there's a kind of an organization to this, this particular prayer. What do you think of this? Is this a Bible guide to prayer? Is it a special code of prayer? Is it a proper incantation or spell that we can use to get God to grant us what we want. I've got the Bible code prayer, and if I just plug in my desires and pray it in this code, in this formula, I've got the special incantation to get what I want out of God. Is that what is that what's going on here? No, it's not what's going on. There's nothing special about this structure. It's not a Bible guide to prayer. In my view, it's a prayer of a very sincere person whose heart loved God and wanted to see God's plan move forward, and he reached out and asked God to use him. Remember James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. It's about, is it about the right formula or the right heart motive? So Jesus said in John 14, 13 and 14, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. Is this a new formula Jesus is giving us? If we just ask what we want, at the end of our prayer, go, and in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Is that the formula? Just tag that on the end, and you can ask for any. Lord, I would like to have a million-dollar lottery ticket bought by a parrot to my house today, and I would like to have that. In Jesus' name, amen. Will that parrot deliver me a million-dollar lottery ticket today? Is that what this prayer means? It's just, a, oh, no, 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 I forgot. It's, it doesn't work because his name wasn't Jesus. That's Greek. It had to be Yahshua. Now, you have to say it in the name of Yahshua, then it works. Is that, is that the key? Yes. Maybe it's in the spirit of God. And if we're connected with him, then we want what he wants. And so then our prayers are for what he wants. Oh, I love what you're saying. This is, this is wonderful. See, in the Bible, does the name have meaning? Character, okay? So Jesus is saying, when you pray with my character reproduced within you, then you will be praying with the right motive, asking for the right action, seeking the right goals and purposes in harmony with me and my Father. And of course, I'll be eager to carry those out for you. Praying in his name means praying in his character. So from the remedy paraphrase, it says, and I will do whatever you ask that is in harmony with my character, methods, and principles. So that the Son may bring honor and glory to his Father by revealing the healing and life-giving power of his methods. You may ask me for anything in harmony with my character and methods, and I will do it. Which makes more sense to you? Pray for anything and add the tagline at the end in Jesus' name. And then Jesus is in heaven, is obliged to dispense power to make your prayer come true. Or pray for things in harmony with God's character, methods, principles, and purposes, and God will eagerly work to bring about his will, which you are praying for. Which makes more sense to you? Yeah, okay. So for what was Nehemiah praying? He was praying for the fulfillment of God's plan. God has a plan, and and God revealed that plan from some of the prophets before him, and and Nehemiah simply praying that God will bring forth his plan that he wants to carry out. And Nehemiah also, I think, is saying, and I'm willing to be used if you have a place for me in your plan. Use me. I think this is the secret. 
The lesson also points out that Nehemiah reminds God of what God had already promised to do, that God actually doesn't, though, need to be reminded, and the lesson properly states, it is not that God doesn't want, excuse me, it's not that God doesn't know or remember his promises. Instead, God takes pleasure in our willingness to claim his promises. I, I, I think there's another element in addition to that. I think God does take pleasure, and he's happy when we claim his promises and we search the scripture seeking for his will. I think, it, I think he does take pleasure in that, but I think there's another element besides simply him being pleased that we claim the promise. And, and, and I think it's, he's waiting for a people who trust him and are willing to cooperate with him. To be agents of his, to be conduits that his spirit can empower, enlighten, transform. We are to be lights in the world, salt in the earth, the metaphors. He's waiting for people that he can transform to take his message to the world, isn't he? So when you claim a promise... Do you also say to God, when you claim the promise, do you say this? And if I can be of use in your cause, please use me. I remember I was probably 19 or 20. I can't remember my exact age. And I was listening to a song by a Christian group named Petra. Anybody heard of Petra? And there's a song, it's called I'm Available. And it says, use me, Lord, I'm available. And I remember saying to the Lord, Lord, I'm available. If you got some use for me, use me. And I can tell you my life wasn't perfect from that point on. You can see the ups and downs and the struggles of my personal journey. I have made many mistakes along the way, as many of God's friends have, but I think that uh, my willingness has allowed him to use me. And I love this quote that I forget, and I have to come back and remember. I forget, but I love it. You ever have a quote you love and you forget? Oh, and you have to remind yourself of it? Okay. Well, I love this one from Christ's Object Lessons 333. I'd encourage you to maybe remember this one too. As the will of man cooperates with the will of God, it becomes omnipotent. Whatever is to be done at his command may be accomplished in his strength. All his biddings are enablings. Isn't that cool? It just gives me chills. Uh, as we cooperate with him... uh, As the will of man cooperates with the will of God, it becomes omnipotent. I don't think I cooperate enough. (laughs) I got more cooperation to do. Has your will become omnipotent yet? As we're cooperating with the will of God, okay? Whatever is to be done at his command may be accomplished in his strength. All his biddings are enabled. I love that quote. So do we see in the quote that I just read... um, Fulfilled in the life of Nehemiah. Don't we see it? Was Nehemiah empowered to speak out, to be successful in his mission, to rebuild the walls? Yes. What about us today? Do we cooperate to speak out for the rebuilding of the walls, for the the rebuilding of the truth about God's law and his salvation found only in Christ? Now, I want to give you some historical facts, and I want to ask you, what do we learn from it? Here we go. Captives, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the captives become advisors to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon and Darius in Persia. Captive, Nehemiah becomes advisor to Artaxerxes I. Captive, slave, Joseph becomes advisor to Pharaoh and ruler in Egypt. This is historical. These are facts, right? Right. Historical facts. What are the lessons? Well, the obvious one, and that's not the one I'm going for, God can bring good out of difficult circumstance. That's an obvious lesson, right? But what about the human side of the equation? What lesson did we learn there? That's the God side. What about the human side? Did these human beings have a role to play? Did God need human beings that despite the adversity, the hardship, the betrayal, the enslavement, maintained their trust in him? Consider the implications. Do you think any of the people I just read about were beyond being tempted with anger or hurt or resentment or bitterness toward their captors? Do you think they were beyond being tempted with feelings to rebel? Or might they have had those temptations and those powerful feelings? 
Do we see in any of these individuals that the tempta- if the temptations had taken root and they began to practice the methods of violence, deceit, hostility, warfare, would God's purposes have been carried out? Or would they have not been useful? If you look at the history of Israel, they were always the rebels that were warring against the various. And why is it that the Babylonian captivity, read prophets and kings, and why the captivity became worse. There were several times Nebuchadnezzar took captives. It was minimal at first. And, God, and Jeremiah is telling them, submit, submit. They wouldn't submit. And it had to be more and more, remember? Yeah. Will we as a church f- f- fulfill God's end-time purposes? Well, well first, what, while we're being abused and having uh, rights violated, will we see, where will we seek our deliverance? Will we seek it by civil war and human government, or will we seek our deliverance from God? If you believe anything that Ellen White wrote about the eschatological events coming, those who stay faithful to him are going to be persecuted by powers but he will send his angels to watch over them and when and she actually writes that when they have their metaphorical swords because i I don't know that our government is going to take away the the police's nine millimeters and give them swords so but but the weapons turn to straw she talks about they become powerless in other words god sends his angels to protect us will we as a church fulfill god's end time mission by using human governments to pass laws to mandate our moral principles. One of our online class members, Gwyneth Roberts Baxter, sent me an email last week um, with the following quote from a uh, professor, uh, a retired professor from Yale University's law school, where he retired in uh, 78. But listen to this quote. Uh, His name was uh, Grant Gilmore. Law reflects, but in no sense determines the moral worth of a society. The values of a reasonable, just society will reflect themselves in a reasonable law. The better the society, the less law there will be. In heaven, there will be no law, and the lion will lie down with the lamb. The values of an unjust society will reflect themselves in unjust law. The worse the society, the more laws there will be. In hell, there will be nothing but law and due process with meticulous, meticulously observed. <laughs> when we experience mistreatment, do we turn to God for deliverance or do we seek the courts? And uh, I'm not talking about your individual problem. I'm talking about are we seeking to, uh, uh, to have the nation conform to our moral belief system? Any, anybody want to comment on that? This is happening in our nation today. What do you think the, the beastly system and the image to the beast is? What is it? It is a merger of church and state. It is a, a people who want to use the state to force their moral values. And by the way, the church, I'm, I'm coming to some, uh, 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 some awareness, does not have to be an actual organized filed with the tax department, church. Amen. See, there are religious systems of belief that are not called churches. But if you understand the law of worship, there are, there are philosophical belief systems that govern people, and they're using the system to force their philosophical belief systems on the nation. There's a merging going on of this, some might call it a cultural revolution. But there's a real battle going on. What's the Christian? And and by the way, if you get tempted, as you see some immoral practices and principles being taught in the nation passing laws that you disagree with, if you're tempted, just consider how Jesus and the apostles handled the situation in their day. Which country had more human rights violations, ours today or Rome? Did Jesus and the apostles seek to get new senators elected to the Senate? Or, uh, Or did they petition to have a different governor in Palestine? I mean, they didn't go into political maneuvers. They went to free hearts and minds. I just read an article yesterday, and we're going to close on this. just read an article yesterday about the gospel is moving like fire. It's the number one rapidly most, according to this article, the, the rapidly um, expanding or building church in the world right now is in I- Iran. And it's being done by women underground, who are, con- who are converting to Jesus Christ, 
and developing a love for the Jewish nation and the descendants of Abraham and uh, accepting Jesus as their Savior and rejecting Islam. Why? And they say the, the, the number one evangelist for Jesus is the Ayatollahs. Because the Ayatollahs take Islam to its natural ends with no freedom, no autonomy, and abuse of women. Complete domination and control. If you look at how Jesus treated women, it's completely different. And this is design law. When you violate liberty, threaten to kill somebody who doesn't believe what you believe, you destroy love and you incite rebellion. They look somewhere else. And the gospel of Jesus is the gospel of truth, love, and freedom. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are a magnificent, infinite being who has created the universe to operate in harmony with your character of love. And we thank you for Jesus who came to be our Savior because we could not fix the problem that Adam caused. We couldn't save ourselves. And we ask now that your spirit will take the victories of Christ and reproduce them in us and restore in us uh, your character of love that we can be salt in, in this world, light in this world. And the final message of Revelation 18 can go forward and the walls can be repaired and people can see your law as you really built it to operate. We pray in your holy name. Amen.